Today, we're diving into dairy with Alan Bjerga. We're going to talk about his work in Washington, D.C. and how he's helping farmers. So grab your popcorn with some extra butter and get ready to listen to the Justice Podcast. Everybody wants to talk, but nobody wants to listen. So here's my petition. Instead of division, let's make our mission to change the system. Learn how the world works. Learn how we can act. Welcome, everybody, to the Justice Podcast. Alan, if you could just introduce yourself, and I know that you have various experiences within the agricultural industry, um, but if you can inform the listeners of kind of what your background is and why you're qualified yeah. to speak on the topic. <laughs> why am I qualified to speak? Why, when has that ever been the determining consideration? Um <laughs> So my name is Alan Bierga. I'm the Senior Vice President of Communications for the National Milk Producers Federation. We're based in the Washington, D.C. area, and we represent uh, dairy cooperatives nationwide. Um, I came to this position in 2018. Before that, I had been the League Agriculture Policy Writer for Bloomberg News. Um, I've been in Washington for about 20 years, um, but I grew up on a sheep farm in northern Minnesota. My family literally bought their land from a dairy farmer, um, and we were surrounded by the cows. So it's it's fun to have a homecoming while in Washington, D.C., and it's great to be representing folks who provide such an important product that is, you know, it's, it's evident in 94% of U.S. refrigerators, and despite what some of the plant-based people will tell you, remains pretty essential to the diets of the vast majority of Americans. And that's interesting. So you said goat farming? Uh, sheep. Sheep, sorry. Excuse me. Um, and but now, I mean, you are the SVP of communications at the National Milk Producers Federation and also a Georgetown adjunct professor. Is that right? That's right. Starting up in three weeks doing my money and media class for uh, journalism and communications professionals. I've been at Georgetown for about 10 years um, and I've always been adjunct. So you just kind of live day to day. But but they keep bringing me back and it's always a pleasure to be there. And I also saw on your LinkedIn that you're a vocalist. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, I, are you talking about, uh, are you talking about the show at the Soldier's Home? The show, Soldier's Home, and then it mentioned something else on there about being a vocalist. Um, but what, what kind of music do you like to sing? <laughs> well, I'll tell you a little bit about my show at the uh, Armed Forces Retirement Home. I actually just got asked back for that last week, you know, every year, uh, the week of the 4th of July, I do a concert um, for veterans, folks who live at the Armed Forces Retirement Home in Washington, D.C. And I started doing it in 2013. And it, it was fascinating to see how the set list moved along because, of course, you know, our veteran population is aging. And, and every two year, every year, you know, there would be two World War II vets that had been there the previous year that wouldn't be there again because they had passed on. And then they'd be replaced by one Vietnam era vet, of course, um, as they age into into that demographic. And so when I started playing the show in 2013, it was a lot of, you know, uh, like 1950s folk. We're talking like Pete Seeger and the Weavers and the Kingston Trio. And by the time I was playing in 2019, I was getting requests for the Eagles and Billy Joel. You know, because that's that's who's living in the Armed Forces Retirement Home. Um, and now, of course, COVID um, 
COVID delayed things and the 2020 show was canceled and the 2021 show was canceled. And then this year they just started bringing back entertainment at their canteen. They call them canteens. And I just got put on the schedule for 2023. So it's pretty amazing to think that um, I'll end up having a four year delay from that show. Um, the other big thing that I do, and this is related to, to Georgetown, because you're talking about what kind of music I perform. The other thing that I do for something completely different is every year for Martin Luther King Day, um, Georgetown University has had a festival choir um, that has always performed a concert in, in um, honor of Dr. King. And that's fascinating because it's basically folks from the Georgetown community and um, then some of the just top singers from the black churches in Washington, D.C. You know, the African-American church community in Washington, D.C. is so rich and so vibrant and these folks are amazing. And there's always a guest artist. So I've had the chance to sing with uh, Natalie Cole before she passed, uh, Vanessa Williams, uh, and then Gladys Knight uh, sang with us one year. So I have had the opportunity, and it's been a highlight of my musical life. I have been a pip. I have sung backup for Gladys Knight on Midnight Train to Georgia. Um, and I tell you, the guy standing next to me, like as we were singing, yeah, all aboard, midnight train to go. It was pretty incredible to be singing with her. I love that. That oh, that's so cool. Um, <laughs> so, but bringing it back to farming, um, right, right, back to farming. Hey, <laughs> but I, I hey, lot, lot, everybody eats, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so the farm bill. Uh, my understanding is it has three components. It's kind of like farming regulation subsidies, kind of farming uh, component, and then the environmental protections, and then there's the SNAP or the food stamps component. Is that right? Uh, you know, the Farm Bill is a pretty comprehensive piece of legislation. I mean, it touches the life of everybody in the United States and, and arguably the world when you take a look at the impact of U.S. agriculture. I've been parts of farm bills. I think the, the first one I covered in Washington was the one that was written in 2002. And of course, growing up on a farm, I, I was affected by farm bills my whole life. Um, it's divided into what are called titles. Um, and there's, you know, the nutrition title and there'll be the energy title. And the big one is always the commodity title, which are, you know, the farm support programs that you always hear about. And so depending on, you know, which party is in control of government and what the emphasis is on legislation in a particular year, there'll be different sort of proportion of attention. But, you know, it touches everything from energy and environment and conservation to, you know, nutrition programs, as you mentioned, the SNAP program. Um, you know, it's, it's very comprehensive and it's a big piece of legislation uh, and we're just kind of getting into the first stages of it right now. But I mean, to give you an idea of how significant it is for people who spend their careers in Washington in agriculture, nobody ever talks about how many years they've been doing this. They talk about how many farm bills, like I've been here for five farm bills and they're like, wow, that, that's pretty good. Or I've been here for eight farm bills and people are like, whoa, you know, you're like the highest veteran of this whole process. I guess go, two or two, I'd be like, let me, let me come here. I got 0208. 1418. So I guess this would be farm bill number five for me. So I guess I'm starting to get perilously close to the gray hairs. Um, but yeah, I have been a veteran of this process. Been to this rodeo more than once. And so within the farm bill that's coming up for the 2023 farm bill, um, 
where would you say you're bearish and bullish? And what I mean by that is what concerns you um, about what might be added? And then where are you thinking this is really going to benefit people? That, that's an interesting question. You know, dairy um, has always been kind of a quirky commodity in terms of its support programs because it's kind of not like everything else. It's, it's a major commodity which in a sense puts it in the same category as corn, wheat, soybeans, the big program crops that you see supported from the government. But it's a perishable commodity in a way that those aren't. You know, you can't just put fluid milk and set it in a warehouse and as long as it stays dry, you're okay. So in that sense, it has more in common with, you know, you know your fruits and vegetables programs and such, but they're much more niche in terms of their financial impact, the size of the industry, et cetera. And so dairy has always kind of had its own category of support programs, and, and that's always made dairy one of the more complicated parts of the farm bill. Um, probably, you know, a highlight of that, of that complication was in 2014, where you really saw dairy become the last thing that was decided in the farm bill. You saw this switch in the, the dairy support system. Um, the to, to sort of a more insurance-based disaster assistance program. It was called the Margin Protection Program. And the idea was this farmers could sort of buy into protection against um, fluctuations in what's called the margin. The margin is basically the price you get for your milk minus what your feed costs are because that's your main revenue and that's your main cost. And, and you could insure yourself at a certain level and you could insure yourself at a point where you know, you could help ensure the, the survivability of your operation. It didn't work in 2014. Farmers really didn't sign on it. The, the margins really weren't meaningful. A lot of farms really didn't feel like they were getting the support that was, that was justified by their payment. And so there was an effort to fix that in the 2018 Farm Bill. The good news is the 2018 Farm Bill, which is the current one we're living under, did a much better job. It's now called the Dairy Margin Coverage Program. It's more meaningful coverage for producers. Um, it can cover a little bit more of the production itself. Um, for folks who are using it, it seems to be working very well. So I'm bullish in the sense that I think DMC is likely to be preserved in this farm bill. And I think there'll be some very strong arguments for it to be enhanced in certain ways. You know, DMC is, is designed to protect smaller to medium sized farms. I think there's a good shot that the definition of what a smaller and medium sized farm could be updated to sort of reflect what such a farm is these days, which frankly is producing more milk than it used to be before. So that's one thing to look at. The other thing is, is that there's always sort of this base level of production in the past that these programs are based on for a farm. Like, you know, you, you produce the X amount of milk in X year. This is how much you can enroll in the program. Um, Congress has made efforts in recent years to do some updates on that. I think there's a good chance that those updates will be furthered in the next farm bill. So farmers have more up-to-date information that better reflects what they're actually producing for this program. Um, one thing you have to keep in mind, though, is, is that the pot of money in the farm program is only so much, right? I mean, you can't just give everyone what they want. And some of the biggest issues in a farm bill are about, you know, going back to that commodity title, each commodity has its own asks and it has its own thing. Um, and, and with dairy, you're really looking for effective risk management for farmers in every region and every size. Because these farms are still family farms predominantly, no matter what the operation is. If your idea of this bill is, you know, support 
rural communities, support agriculture, keep farmers in business. You need programs that are reflective of all producers at all levels. And that's always a challenge, you know, when you have the funding levels that, that, that you're given by Congress to not end up picking winners and losers based on the structure of dairy farms across the country. We've already seen some examples of that in farm programs where, where certain farms in certain parts of the country don't necessarily get equitable treatment in terms of government programs because of the way those are formulated. That's going to be uphill in the next farm bill, um, but I think we can make a strong case. And I think, you know, dairy is, in, by historical terms, pretty united um and when you dairy is united as a community you know it tends to get some things done so we're going to work at it i mean it's not my job to be bearish about anything um it's it's all about hope and it's all about building things but i mean there's some real challenges there and you got to be honest about it um i think that working for all sizes and all regions is going to be you know our mantra going into the next farm bill and that's going to be where some of our biggest challenges are so what would you propose is the way that Congress should approach um, equity within this heterogeneous structure of dairy? That's a, that's an interesting question. I think you really have to take a look at cost structures. You have to look at at um, in terms of what is a viable family dairy farm these days in different parts of the country. You have to take a look at which markets are producing different types of dairy products because the economics are different if say you're supplying you know cheese to the upper midwest versus you're supplying fluid milk in the southeast or you're on the west coast and you're looking very much at exports it's not one size fits all and that that's the part that you have to have to be looking at the other thing to keep in mind is you know farm program support is not about always just writing a check to a farmer it's also about, and you hear more about this all the time, you know, environmental stewardship and conservation and rewarding farmers for practices they do well. One of the issues that dairy has always had with USDA conservation programs is, is that there are things that dairy farmers do that maybe are not recognized the same way that some of the practices that a crop producer might be doing. Um, dairy has what's called a, it's an industry wide, it's a net zero initiative. It's, it's our carbon, it's our climate neutrality pledge by 2050. You know, we're trying to make efforts in terms of investing in the technology and the innovation and the practices that can get us toward that goal. Well, those are incentives for farmers as well. And, and frankly, sometimes they're incentives that are really attractive to larger farmers because they're the ones with the economies of scale to take advantage of them. So it's not just looking at like the dairy margin coverage program or or you know what the price what what's the price going to be and, and and what sort of payment do you get based on what price that's a very 20th early 21st way of looking at farm bill 21st century way of looking at farm bills that may be legitimate today but there's other stuff going on too and you need to be proactive and you need to be looking at those programs and and getting back to what you were saying about equity that's one way to do it you know it's not just that one program has to be done in this complex way to fit everybody you acknowledge that okay this program kind of is geared more towards those folks but we have this other program and that really helps those folks and that's how everybody gets to be part of the agreement everybody gets closer to that equity apples and oranges are recognized um, and everybody gets a chance to prosper so you just mentioned something I'd like to discuss, and that is the environmental concerns around dairy. I mean, it's 
many studies have been done in regards to how impactful cattle are um, in, on the environment with carbon emissions. Is that something that's addressed within the farm bill? Increasingly so. I mean, if you look historically at farm bills, it, it reflects the concerns of the moment. I think that's one thing that's fascinating if you're a student of them. It's kind of like whatever agriculture was concerned about that year, that's what the farm bill looks like, right? Um, and, you know, you go back to, now just, just to geek out for a minute, you know, like the 1985 farm bill and the conservation reserve program, right? There was a lot of concern about soil erosion and fragile lands and that making sure that farmers were producing on the land that was best suited for production and maybe other, other pat patches of land that needed to get a little bit of a rest, there was an incentive to give them a rest. And so you had the CRP. You know, you take a look at farm bills in 2002, 2008, there's a lot of stuff about ethanol, right? Because there was this, this push for ethanol as a renewable alternative fuel. You also frankly had, you know, corn crops that could sustain it. Now we take a look at the, the challenges of the 2020s and you're looking at these emission goals and concerns about climate change and, and encouragement of sustainability. And so you look into the farm program you look into farm programs and you, you look at things like tax credits for methane digesters on dairy farms, for example, that can take methane and, and, and do something usable with them. You look at the incentives of, of getting some of the byproducts of animals into perhaps the electrical grid where they can take some of the, you know, some of the relief off of fossil fuels. I, I, I hesitate on talking about that in too much detail in the farm bill for a very practical reason that should probably be made clear. Right now, there's a big piece of legislation going before the Senate um, that could have a chance to pass in Congress. You know, this, this, this inflation, um, what's, what's it being called right now? The Inflation Reduction Act, it, it, you, it's, you know, son of build back better, except it's a little bit smaller. Uh, but it also has a lot of incentives um, for what's called climate smart agriculture. Um, and, and the relationship between that, what gets implemented through that legislation will actually touch and kind of help shape what ends up getting into the farm bill. So it's tough getting into too many details about energy and environment and, and sustainability pledges in the farm bill until that shoe drops. We, we kind of have one thing that has to happen before we have that other conversation in a few months. Feel free to call back. Um, I'm, I'm giving you the best I got today. No, that's great. Um, and actually, you bring up something else is the complexity of how laws and policies aren't in silos, right? Like they're all affecting each other. So what other policies are going to be affecting how we think about the farm bill? Yeah, I mean, if indeed this um, Inflation Reduction Act gets passed um, and there is indeed funding for climate smart agriculture, you know, that's really a head start that gets it, it gives you a chance to take a look at that and say, hey, what seems to be working here? What should we be expanding and enhancing? What are some things that are missing? What else would be good for agriculture? How do farm programs now interact with these different things that have come through these pieces of legislation? Um, yeah, one thing affects everything else. And frankly, I think Washington is still trying to, you know, get its brain around the idea that this convention wisdom of you know this legislation being stalled kind of disappeared 
you know, just in recent days. And, and now everybody had kind of been thinking one way and now we're all going to be thinking another way. And it's, it's all to be continued. But you're right. I mean, the 2023 Farm Bill is going to be affected by a lot of things. This legislation is one of it. Obviously, we have midterms this fall. You could have literally different committee chairs riding the show next year. Um, and they have different priorities. Uh, that also affects what we can do and say too, because we don't know. You know, you're you're you you have a sense of what your needs are and what you can reflect as an industry. But depending on who you talk to, it's like everything else. You emphasize different things. You take a look at different initiatives. There's a lot to play out. Um, I think we have some broad outlines, uh, re regardless of whether you know there's Republican or, or Democratic congressional leadership next year. Sustainability in the environment is not going to go away. Um, clearly, there are Republicans and Democrats who have very different views on such topics, but we're not at a point where they're just going to be stifled by one side or or just kind of rolled by the other. There's bipartisan concern about these issues. The question becomes the, the approach. Um, and we all know that, you know, we've seen how the dairy margin coverage program works for some folks, um, but how some of these support programs have not necessarily worked as well for other people. You go into it figuring out the best way to make it work for everybody. That that doesn't really affect the environment, but when you get down to the details of the moving parts, it's hard at this point to say, yes, we want X because of this. Because right now we don't even know who we're talking to. Um, we know we're going to go, but but the specifics kind of get filled in as the information comes along. So is there an area of the farm bill um, or even just dairy policy in a more general sense that you feel like doesn't get enough attention? Um, well, I think more attention, more of the right attention could come to our sustainability work. It's not that it doesn't get attention. Oh, you see attention paid to it. Um, you know, because you see the activist groups and, and they start putting, you know, they, they start putting animal agriculture as, as part of the issue in terms of climate change. And, you know, I think dairy, I can't speak for other sectors of animal agriculture, but I know that dairy has a, a very good story to tell um, that I'm, I'm sure is shared among other aspects of the animal agriculture system. But, you know, we do have our net zero pledge. We do have opportunities to create some very regenerative life cycles on farms where, you know, the animals are actually consuming feed and, and, and inputs that frankly, you know, it wouldn't be planted in strawberries and it wouldn't be necessarily turned into tall grassland. It, it, it's land that, that has a use and that land is for animal agriculture. Um, dairy produces emissions. There's no doubt about that. So do you and I, um, and I think, you know, we like to think we have usefulness too, right? I think, I think the cows probably have use and what their use is, is, you know, they're providing some really nutritious products that provide animal protein and nourish families and, and nourish communities worldwide. You know, it's, it's estimated that there's a billion people involved in dairy somehow around the world. You know, especially you get into developing nations in the Horn of Africa and you get to places where the cow is the family wealth. This is something that that matters for this planet. And because of that and because we have sustainability concerns, you have to figure out a way to make it work. And we think we can and we think we're doing innovative things that are helping make it work. 
and you don't see a lot about that, right? You just see, you, you, you hear these stories about, you know, this contribution to climate change. I look at some of that stuff and I'm wondering how much of that stuff is coming from, from folks paid by the oil industry. I mean, come on, let's take a look at transportation versus agriculture. You wanna take a look at the, at the contributors to, to the planet? You know, the cows are not the first place you should be looking for. But um, we do think that we are part of the solution uh, we would like more attention toward being part of the solution. We do get attention, but I think it's disproportionately talking about how we're part of the problem. And I don't necessarily think that is the most accurate perception you can have of this industry. Well, Alan, I, th I think that is kind of the last question I had, unless you had any other thoughts you'd like to share. Well, my biggest problem is I talk too much and I start rattling and, and there's a good risk at that, that somebody's going to jump in and say, aha, you said that. Let's, let's go along there. But I appreciate that you seized on parts where I may have been semi-coherent and perceptive and we were able to have this conversation. Awesome. Well, before we break, I would love to share the uh, dad joke of the day, if you will. <laughs> I got a few of them too. <laughs> I'm sure you do. And you may have heard this one before. But what do you get from a pampered cow? Oh, wow. I haven't heard this one, no. Spoiled milk. Ooh, that's a good one. That's a good one. I don't, I, I may have to, I may have to uh, steal that one at the dinner table this evening. Thank you. <laughs> I'll be washing it down with a big glass of whole milk. <laughs> good. All right. Um, Alan, thank you so much again for your time. It was great having you. Pleasure. Thank you. This isn't financial, legal, or medical advice, but we do discuss how we might invest our resources for a healthier society. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic and other public policy issues, check out the website, thejusticepodcast.com.